Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Varying Viewpoints podcast, which is sponsored by the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Institute for Leadership, Equity, and Justice. Uh, this is Mary Beth Gassman, and I am your host today. I'm a professor at Rutgers University. I am really, really excited about our guest today. We have with us John S. Wilson Jr., who is author of an amazing new book called Hope and Healing, Black Colleges and the Future of American Democracy. And he is also a visiting lecturer at Morgan State University, a historically black college in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, I'm really excited to talk to John today because I have read the book several times and I am also very familiar with all of his leadership, both as part of uh, the White House Initiative on Historically Black Colleges and Universities and also his work as president of uh, Morehouse College. So uh, excited to have you here with us, John. Welcome. Uh, thank you. Thank you, uh, Dr. Gassman. I, I really appreciate you having me on. Um, and uh, thank you for that introduction. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. So I'm going to just start asking the questions that I have. And please call me Mary Beth while we're having this little conversation. Yeah. Um, so no first of all, for those of those people out there listening who don't know that much about you, I'd love for you to talk a bit about your personal story and just a little bit about you and, and introduce people to who you are. Sure. Born and raised not too far from Rutgers uh, in Philadelphia. And my parents, uh, that typical combination, mom's a teacher, dad was a preacher, and four kids. And, you know, we uh, grew up in a, in a home that was a learning environment. And so academic excellence was, was instilled in us. And we all went to college. Uh, my brother and I went to Morehouse. Our youngest sister who went to Hampton. And my old older sister, uh, the oldest of the four, uh, went to Swarthmore. And so uh, we've seen, uh, we have three out of four going to HBCUs. Um, our parents went to HBCUs. My grandfather's an HBCU graduate. So I've been in exposed to HBCUs literally all of my life. So it's no surprise that I've spent most of my career either focused on them or, or working in them. Wow, thank you. I love I love hearing a story like that. So thank you for sharing that with everyone. Um, so uh, this book, right? I know that you pour, have poured your heart and soul in this book. You can feel it in every page. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about, you know, what is the book about and what inspired you to write this book? Um, because again, if you haven't read it, uh, John's heart and soul is just completely present throughout the book. And so I want to know, you know, what's behind all of this. Thanks. Uh, I just want to say, Mary Beth, this book does come out of my biography. The contours of it uh, and the way it's set up comes out of my experience of having attended Morehouse College and then after that, Harvard University. Those are two very different worlds. And I was of this viewpoint as I arrived at Harvard. Wasn't there long before I decided with conviction that Morehouse ex has exactly what Harvard needs and Harvard has exactly what Morehouse needs. What that meant to me at that point was I loved Morehouse. 
I, I enjoyed every minute of it in terms of the way I felt going through Morehouse. There is absolutely nothing like feeling like you are in a place where you belong. It's just a magical feeling. And to have that experience outside of your home in an educational environment is truly transformational. So Morehouse was a setting that was made for people with my profile, African-American male. And I, it was very, it was radically different from my high school experience and almost like grade three through 12 experience, which was predominantly white. We moved to the predominantly white suburbs at that point. And that changed the taste of education from what it had been and what it tended to be at home. At home, I had high expectations <laughs> And, uh, and in that in those settings, it was very different. It was low expectations and doubt. And so Morehouse uh, flipped that script for me and basically fixed me for life. I mean, by the time I got to Harvard, I didn't even know how to doubt myself anymore. <laughs> Morehouse was so, so profoundly impactful. And basically what I meant when I said that Morehouse has exactly what Harvard needs uh, it's basically uh, that emphasis on character and that more personal uh, nurturing mm -hmm. experience, a sense that the educational environment sees you and knows you and believes in your aspirations. Harvard did not give me that. On the other hand, what Harvard had that Morehouse did not have is the is the capital side of things. So Morehouse was where the emphasis was on character. And Harvard was where the emphasis was on capital. And uh, what that meant was they had the first-rate uh, campus, the sprawling state-of-the-art buildings. They had well-paid faculty members and a large faculty. It was really a great uh, curricular menu. And they had students who were not in the least bit worried about money. The students had their full bandwidth available for them to learn and did not have to deal with the doubt and this fear that I might have to go home if a check doesn't come from my mom and dad or my church or from somebody. That I lost half the class that entered with me uh, at Morehouse. By the time we graduated, half of them were gone. And so that's the way the book is framed. I, I call that the holy grail, uh, capital and character optimization in one place at, on one campus at the same time. And I really believe no institution, a black or white, American or outside of America, no higher education institution has ever fully optimized capital and character. And that's what I talk about in this book. It's, it's largely about HBCUs, but ultimately it's not about HBCUs because I suggest that even though I'm I'm kind of reading higher ed history through the HBCU prism, I point to in the last two chapters the likely national and global consequences if American uh, higher education does not follow the HBCU blueprint from the middle of the last century. That is to say, in the middle of the last century, HBCUs deliberately and aggressively produced the generals and foot soldiers of a movement to transform and elevate democracy. And uh, I think we have to do that again. So that's basically what the book is about. I say we have to fix two major things. One is the democracy and the other is the, uh, is the planet.
Mm, agreed, agree, agree, agree. Thank you. Okay, so another question I have, because there are a lot of kind of topics in this book. So you note that HBCU endowment legacy, democratic legacy, and what you call the encore imperative, you, you, you talk about these things. Can you talk a bit more about those topics and what they are? Yeah, I think, I mean, this is pretty much a framing for the book. I started my career at MIT as uh, most of that time as a fundraiser, 16 years. And basically, this was the birth of the billion dollar capital campaign era. And so, you know, by the time I started my career at MIT, just after finishing my doctorate at Harvard, I was, again, was amazed because MIT was capital intensive and this, as I said, this was the start of the billion-dollar capital campaign era, and so I got into fundraising, and you know I believe what so many people believed, and that is HBCU have never uh, been good at raising money, and that's not true. And I was amazed to learn in history that that is not true. And, and Mary Beth, that that caused me to literally reframe a person that I was taught to villainize, that I was taught to to despise. And, and that's Booker T. Washington. Booker T. Washington basically is the heart of the story uh, that I call the endowment legacy because of his emphasis from the start on endowment and building an endowment for the Tuskegee Institute, now called Tuskegee University. He, he built an endowment of $2 million in the 34 years that he led that institution. And that was larger than most of the prestigious, predominantly white campuses we hear about today. Uh, he had more in, in 1915, uh, more in endowment than, than so many of them had. So that's the heart of that story. It's a reframing of, of Booker T. Washington. And basically it's a challenge to today's HBCU leaders letting them know that we did it before, we can do it again. We just have to engage the philanthropic community differently. What I call the democracy legacy is what I was referencing of what HBCUs did in the last century. After HBCUs got up from illiteracy and got up from poverty or helped African-Americans to get up from illiteracy and, and poverty, the next challenge was to get up from uh, marginality. And basically, that's the story of perfecting or trying to perfect the union or the democracy. Democracy, for most of American history, has been untrue. It's been unfulfilled. It's been cordoned off for white males for most of history, and then others were given voice in the vote, uh, women and uh, and people of color. And then we've been uh, gradually uh, becoming a democracy by treating other people with different profiles, um, previously excluded or diminished, um, treating them more fairly. And that's the LGBTQ community and, and others. And so I basically am suggesting that effort that HBCUs uh, engaged in, tremendous effort in the last uh, century, was a very deliberate and aggressive effort, and it yielded tangible results in the form of a Voting Rights Act, uh, uh, two Civil Rights Acts, and, and the opening of American higher education. So that's the democracy legacy, and that's the heart of the encore imperative, um, because that's why I said we need to do it again. 
we must do it again. And targeting this time, again, democracy, but also the fact that we're facing an existential threat with climate change. And that's why I say we have to save the planet as well. Those are the three ways to segment it, the endowment legacy, the democracy legacy, and the encore imperative. Mm, okay. Okay. And when kind of exploring those topics, how do they influence American democracy? Or uh, I guess, where do you see the future headed? I think we're in trouble unless we do what I'm recommending. I do think that um, I recall the quote by John Dewey, who said, uh, democracy has to be born anew every generation, and education is its midwife. I do not believe that American higher education in general has been an effective midwife. As a matter of fact, I think it's been pretty negligent as a midwife in terms of being a midwife for democracy. The only subsector of American higher education that has effectively played the role of midwife uh, in a concerted way uh, is uh, is the HBCU community. So that's why I say uh, the democracy is going to be in big trouble unless we do something about it and we have to be pretty aggressive. And that's why I put the challenge not just to HBCUs to do it again. The encore is not confined to them. The encore is for, for all of American higher education and literally all of American society. We have to decide emphatically not to tiptoe toward freedom as, as Dr. King framed, but to stride toward it aggressively and to really make democracy uh, come true for the first time. That would that would be great, you know, because <laughs> it yeah. definitely feels uh, feels a little scary right now when you start thinking about the future. So I have to I have to try to believe in the in the best in all of us, and um, in order to keep going, right? So uh, you know, we we know that the power of the HBCU tradition is really strong, but you know, the idea of the college graduate changes with each passing year. And I'm just wondering how, from your vantage point, how HBCUs can shape a new college graduate while also maintaining that HBCU tradition that is so important. Well, the HBCU tradition that's so important, in my view, is the democracy legacy. So I don't, I, I you know, again, I do not think that the challenge here is for HBCUs to shape a new college graduate. I think the challenge is for American higher education to shape a new college graduate. I think the challenge is for for all of us and not just some of us. It's a shame that HBCUs were the ones, uh, uniquely the ones, to pull off the democracy surge in the middle of the last century. Had we been playing, had American higher education been playing the, the role of midwife, that would have been done a long time ago. So uh, I think, you know, it is not, uh, it is not appropriate to, to, for anybody to think that HBCUs should be the ones to do it again. I really do think it's, it's on all of us now. And, and the pressure is even greater now than it ever was. So this new college graduate that I talk about in the book in, in terms of shaping new citizens is going to be a a national, if not a global imperative, because the kind of people we need 
uh, in this world now who who are not narrowly focused on finding a seat on the Western train, but they are concerned about where the train is going and how fast. And that's to lean on a an analogy uh, conveyed by W.B. Du Bois. So this is global, Mary Beth, and I, I, and I know you know that, thinking that this HBCU tradition is something that uh, higher education worldwide needs to take notes from, and that is the democracy tradition. The idea of using the undergraduate experience in particular to shape people to go out to be aggressive forces for good in the world. That's that's magical stuff. That's great stuff. And it's the work of everybody. Mm, I like that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so there's been a lot going on lately in the news about HBCUs and funding. And, you know, given the news of the underfunding, the chronic and systemic and historical underfunding, especially of the public uh, land grant HBCUs, where do you see where do you see HBCUs headed in the next decade? And you can, if you want to kind of separate that into public and private, I'd be curious about your thoughts. Well, I think when you talk about the the underfunding, there you're you're referencing the the public uh, HBCUs and and the fact that the that multiple states are finally acknowledging, which has been which is something that's been obvious for decades, and that is they have been violating the law. They were supposed to, you know, originally supposed to have systems that were separate but equal, and they've never been equal. And when the law, the federal law came down that they should be funded equally, they never did it. And that's that's quantifiable. And so the numbers are just coming out. And so that's the the, the main underfunding story, but there's another underfunding story, and then that is because America's philanthropic community has been has been kind of narrow in their thinking as well, and skewing uh, their support historically to it, the more elite institutions in the country, excluding HBCUs. And so, I really, I mean, you read my book, and you will understand that. Uh, you know, it's as much to the higher ed community as it is to the the, the philanthropic community. Uh, right now, Mary Beth, over five hundred billion dollars is given out in philanthropy in general. More than fifty billion uh, uh, to higher ed alone in this country, and uh, there there are about twenty institutions every year get anywhere in between. Uh, 25 and 35 percent of it, uh, not a single HBCU on that is on that list. And now HBCUs collectively get roughly between three and four hundred million dollars per year, whereas there's 50 billion available. That's uh, that's that's tough. So I I think the challenge of underfunding is a challenge that needs to be heard and and addressed by both the federal government and the private philanthropic community. And basically, I think they need to begin rewarding institutions that take on this, this mission, the revival of the HBCU mission of deliberately and aggressively educating people 
to be forces for good in the world. The state funding that has to be corrected now is by formula, and they should go to the public HBCUs that that they have been depriving all along. But the private philanthropic funding, I think the change they need to make is to begin looking for places to invest in that have something to do with societal improvement in terms of shaping a new kind of citizen. And with that change, uh, I think we can, with both changes, we can work some some magic in America and around the world. Mm, I like that. I like that. I love how you connected HBCUs to democracy. I think that's so important because I think sometimes people forget just how powerful they can be as institutions. So just love that. Um, well, I guess the the last question I have for you is, um, first of all, if you, you know, have any kind of concluding thoughts, but also what piece of advice would you leave our listeners with? What, what do you want to inspire people with? Well, I'm going to give, remind people of the challenge and then inspire them to, to help us all meet it. I think, you know, there is a tone of urgency, if not a tone of emergency in my book. Um, because I, I think the challenges that I point to, it's getting worse uh, to the degree that I am correct, and I think I am, that American higher education has been a negligent midwife. I feel like we are becoming more neg- negligent, if anything. I mean, with we have book banning going on. Uh, we have politicians deciding what's uh, what should be taught and how administrations uh, should look, um, campus administrations trying to shut down DEI programs, targeting progressive professors. It's really getting out of hand uh, and it runs counter to academic freedom. So I want everyone to have a sense of urgency or a sense of emergency and understand that we have some important work to do in this world, and I believe higher education has been a, uh, a potent force for good in the world, uh, and HBCUs prove that uh, like few other sectors, and it can be a very potent force for good in the world on the road ahead, and it will be that way if uh, if the right things line up, and I believe if a lot of other people Uh, both in the educational community and in the philanthropic community, understand uh, this challenge and embrace this challenge and imagine the kind of world it will be if we all come together and meet this challenge. I think we're going to make the world safe for our, our children and grandchildren and for generations to come. So this is very important work that we have to do. And I invite um, all sane Americans to embrace the job. Mm, I like it. Thank you. Hope and healing indeed. Hope and healing indeed. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And thank you for being with us. This has been great. I'm hoping all of our listeners will have learned a lot about black colleges, but also about higher education and how we can really uh, save American democracy. So thanks so much.